wrestling nerds, you're about to sink your ear holes into a big old serving of the motherfucking IndyCast. For over eight years, the best of independent wrestling interviews, pop culture, debates over topics like breakfast cereals and the Muppets, plus more innuendo than you could shake a goddamn stick at. So here is Maximus Chad Allen, Sticky fucking Steamboat, Zach Romero, and occasionally Duchess Von Finger Bang Luna Lynn, as they bring you the fucking Indie Cats exclusively on the Wrestling Nerds Radio Network. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the IndieCast. I'm Zach Romero. We start season eight of one of the most consistently... I can't finish that sentence. I was just say great, and I was like, who the fuck am I kidding? Uh, the consistent, the most consistent uh, pop culture independent wrestling show on this specific network that comes out on Thursdays. Uh, <laughs> we're starting things off. We blew the budget already. We grabbed number one hot talent. 2000 and I believe it was 19 Florida wrestling rookie of the year. The predominant foothold of the rapture, your favorite bodega boy in mine, Jared Diaz. Jared, thank you so much for joining us here. Here. What's up, Zach? Um, um, I love the intro. You, you popped me on the, on the way to my intro. So thank you for that. <laughs> I started way too confident. And then I realized what the fuck am I even going to say about our really ridiculous show? Um, but yes, no, amazing. What a way to start off season eight. We're thrilled to have you on. Zach, I'm sitting here with a glass of Arizona. I took it out the can. I put it in a glass uh, with a bag of M&Ms because I literally just came from the bodega into the place, took a shower and sat down to talk to you. Oh, so that actually leads me to uh, a, an immediate uh, outsider of New York question. Are bodega cats actually like adorable and fun or are they a pain in the ass? No, when you bodega, count them in person? bodega cats will will track you down. Like if you if you are stealing something, they will walk behind you. Uh, if you just look sketchy, they won't take their eyes off you. Not every, mind you, not every bodega has a cat in it. Right. Um, bodega, bodega cats are actually, they're very like specific to, to Puerto Rican bodegas, Dominican bodegas, Cuban bodegas, uh, Latino bodegas in general. But if you're at a, if you're at an Oc Deli, which is what New Yorkers call like a bodega that's run by a Middle Eastern person, typically there's no cat in that spot. So okay. they're a little intimidating, but like, it's not like they're going to attack you. Right. They're just going to watch you and, like, stare into your soul. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. feel like you're doing something wrong, even if you just walked in. <laughs> you're like, I'm here just to pick up the M&Ms. Holy Christ. So, uh, we here at the IndieCast, going eight years strong, we like to start every podcast uh, interview by running through the same boring questions that you're going to be asked on other podcasts that you end up doing in your uh, illustrious career. And a little segment we call the lightning round. So, we're going to run through these basic uh white bread questions and you answer them as shallow or as in-depth as you would like to uh so starting here uh where did you train and when did you officially debut i initially started training right out of high school at 18 years old at creative pro wrestling up here in long island that kurt hawkins initially had gotten released brian myers by, by wwe him and pat buck opened up this excellent facility in long island and i trained there for a few months before i went away to before I went away to play college football in Indiana. Now, after I was done playing football, I uh, went to Full Sail to finish my degree. And at Full Sail, I 
started wrestling down in Florida with Jason Cade, who's a second cousin, shout out Cade. And he would take me to various schools around the state. Okay. Okay. I mean, now you against him specifically, actually at a show in a, a flagler in front of maybe 70, 80 people. And we went like way farther than we should have. We went like 11, 12 minutes, took me into deep waters. It had, the match was way better than it had any right to be. Like I wasn't good. I was, you know, it was my first match. I was super green, but Cade just carried me through it. You know, I, he's, you know, he's really good. So I definitely got, I, I got a better chance at making a good debut than a lot of other guys. That's amazing. And it's great to like really take hold of any of those opportunities like that. However, now we've got a scapegoat for any time, uh, you know, the rapture runs long in their matches. We know that it's actually Jason Cade's fault. That, <laughs> that he, he taught, he put that in too early. Um, uh, 11, it's our first night. <laughs> so, uh, second question, what is your earliest wrestling memory? Oh, earliest wrestling memory. I was, oh man, that's a tough one. I was, uh, maybe six or seven years old. I was born in 96. So it's just post attitude era. And I, I wasn't even watching it at the time. I just had this little Chris Jericho action figure with the purple tights and the barbed wire and the long hair. And I, again, I wasn't watching at the time, but a couple years later, I remember getting a WrestleMania video game on the GameCube. And it had, I remember specifically, it had uh, Stone Cold and Rob Van Dam. And I think Jericho as well on the cover. And I would just play that game all day and all night. So I didn't even watch wrestling until I was like 10 or 11, but I was playing the game. So you were, that was your sort of introduction to this world out of, you know, an afternoon. And you're just like, I'm playing this until, you know, I, I would, until my mom came and turned the GameCube off right in front of me, we just pulled <laughs> the plug right out of the wall and said, go to bed. You have school in the morning. So excellent. And so, uh, I have to ask who was your main in that game? Were you always Jericho or, Oh no, it was, uh, I was, I was always the rock and my cousin would come over. He wanted to be the rock. And so we'd fight about it. Uh, and then eventually if somebody came and stopped the fight, I would go with Jericho. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Um, what's the, you mentioned you have a, 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 a huge variety of influences at an early stage in your career. You, you, you know, learn the, the initial basics in New York, you come down to Florida, you've been all over. What's the worst piece of wrestling advice you've ever received? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I think the worst piece of wrestling advice would probably be to not sweat the small stuff. Like this is something that I, that I continue to struggle with actually is like remembering that the basics are super important. Uh, like I, I was lucky enough to learn the basics from, uh, you know, Pat Buck and, and Brian Myers. And like, if I forget those things, I'm going to be a worse wrestler for it. And somebody said, don't sweat the small stuff. The basics don't matter so much. I'm like, I got to remember that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, and interesting that you bring that up. I was talking to some wrestlers after a, uh, a show recently, and uh, the wrestlers had gotten forced in a situation where they had to play a lot more comedic than they were used to. And after the show, they were talking about it. And they were like, ah, you know, I've never wrestled like that before. And that was a lot of fun and da 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 And I kind of, you know, snuck my way in and said, well, you know, maybe don't lose that completely. Meaning if you have some lighter moments in the beginning of your match and then things get real serious by the end, 
it's going to make that feel a lot more impactful instead of just being serious from the from the jump. And I feel like it's the same thing. You get oh. caught up sometimes. Sorry, in, I continue. <laughs> you, you get caught up sometimes in like, well, I got to do the coolest shit. And I got to look like this and this and this. And it's like, yes, that's great. But if you start with the basics and build to that by the end, then you got people on their feet as opposed to, hey, we're starting with the, with a destroyer and that's and we're going to try to build from there. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to sorry. I'm not going to pretend like I don't want to do fun stuff and look cool, but no. like I think that and you you said it like play up don't lose this element of comedy and like uh something something that I learned in a I think it was I think it was the Hall of Fame where it was uh don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself. I have right. no problem looking silly. I have no problem uh trying to make someone look better than me as long as I get it back at the end or, or try to mm-hmm. tell a story with it. So yeah, I, I love doing comedy matches when I get a chance to do them. And I think that's really what's most important is like to, to be willing to build that story as long as there's a story there. I think that's something that um, a lot of young wrestlers, I think sometimes miss is that they're like, it, they get caught up with the like, well, am I winning or losing? And it's like, okay, yes, okay. I can see that being frustrating. <laughs> But if you're building a story, that's what really matters. Because you could lose, and who gives a shit if people still want to come up afterwards and shake your hand or buy your merch? 100%. I'm, and I'm not even, like, I'm trying to name drop or whatever because I didn't book the match. But I had a match with Myron Reed uh, two weeks ago at XWA. Mm-hmm. And it was the spot that I was going to fairly regularly. They do weekly shows, and then they run their monthly pay-per-views on Fight TV. And Myron Reed's one of the biggest names on in, in independent wrestling and one of the best in, in, mm-hmm. in the East. and MLW superstar and this big name that they brought in for the show. And he had never been to that promotion before. And I remember they weren't cheering Myron Reed. They were chanting Jared Diaz. And like, uh, it, it's, it's the story. So I don't, I don't care that I lost the match because I had the people I was connected to the people. That exactly. And that's what ultimately matters. And no one's going to remember like, Oh, did he win that or not? No, they're going to remember how you made them feel that night. That's what's important. So to jump back to our lightning rounds, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, if you weren't wrestling, what sport would you be playing? I would definitely be a football player. Well, I, I was a football player. I trained from when I was five years old up until I got into college and played it a bit in Indiana. I traveled the country through middle and high school in you know Louisiana, working with the Mannings to working with various Eagles players in Philadelphia and a plenty of states looking at colleges and stuff. Football was my first love, but I always thought to myself, when I was done with football, I'm going to go wrestle. And it took me a little longer than I expected to get here, but I'm, I'm glad I made that like transition. You envisioned it and made it happen. That's amazing. What's the last piece of media that made you cry? Like a movie, TV show, a weird commercial that caught you in a weird mood? Well, exactly what it is because I I just uh, signed up to start working with them. There's a there's a TikTok and Instagram profile, and it's it's actually you know what this is a cool plug not even for something I'm doing but just something I think people really enjoy. The page is called Are You Happy, and it's an interview series. It, it just it tracks uh, various interviewers around the world, but specifically this one I saw in New York, and it's asked. The question is simple. Are you happy? And the answer is whatever they want to say, as deep as they want to get. And they talk about why they're happy and if one person would have a message to the world. And I watched like seven of them and I just felt myself starting to go. Um, because I, 
I really value happiness in life and like doing what you love and, and doing what makes you happy. And I found that despite loving football as much as I did and, and doing all these other things in college and stuff like that, I've never found anything that makes me happy. Like wrestling makes me happy. And wow. so if I could figure out a way to share my happiness with the world and, and hearing other people speak on those types of things, that gets me, that, that makes me feel stuff. So I'm, I'm absolutely curious and I'm going to have to track this down myself of all the videos that you've watched. How many people start with like, yes, I'm happy and build from there. And how many people say no? You know, it's more yeses than nos, but a lot of people, when they say yes, they really have to think about it. And sometimes it's like a maybe, like, I don't know if I'm happy or like I'm happy sometimes. And it, it gets pretty, it gets pretty um, emotional from the, from, I would imagine from the interview answerer, just because they really have to have that self-reflective moment kind of, kind of caught off guard. Yeah. I would imagine a lot of yeses probably immediately feel like, okay, now I have to justify this. I just said, yes. Now what? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then final lightning round question, uh, Marvel or DC? Ooh, despite the DC tattoo on my chest with the Superman logo in recent years, I have much more enjoyed Marvel and, uh, Marvel comics and Marvel movies, the MCU. So I, I grew up as a DC fan. I love Superman. I love Batman, but Marvel, I'm going to go with Marvel. Uh, what did you think about the Snyder cut? By the way, I saw that on your Twitter that you had uh, retweeted about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Snyder Cut, Snyder Cut. I liked the Snyder Cut because I actually had fun with the Justice League when I first watched it. I got to watch it uh, with a press pass. I was working for a radio station at the time. So I saw an early screening of Justice League, and I was like, you know what? That wasn't really that good, but, like, it was fun. I enjoyed watching it. It was a nice little escape or whatever. But then watching the Snyder Cut, it felt like a whole movie, and it should have because it was four hours. But I just, I don't know. I, I feel like... Everybody begged and clamored for the Snyder Cut. And then when it finally came out, you have camps of people that are praising it as one of the greatest movies of all time. Bleh. And then the other camp that's like, this is just as bad as the, the original cut that they put out, the Joss Whedon, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I liked it. I really did. But was it great? Not really. I, I actually share sort of a similar feeling on it. I didn't actually see the original cut. I just saw the Snyder Cut. Can I ask you why? Um, I, you've, uh, you've, uh, ragged on this before. Uh, I don't really watch a ton of modern media stuff. I watch a lot of old dumb shit. I'm looking at my uncomfortable collection of VHS tapes. I just don't really watch a ton of new shit. Um, so I just never really got around to it. And so when the Snyder cut came out, I was certainly interested, like you said, with the hoopla and like, I was very interested in the the whole thought process of it because it wasn't ever going to really be the original cut because it's not like Zack Snyder, like fell into a black hole for like four years and then came back out and was like, huh? And then pick up where he left off reasons why they ended up going in a different direction halfway through its production. Right. There was right. Zack had a family tragedy, of course. And in addition, it was the sort of different direction that Warner brothers wanted to go in it with it. So it makes sense why a four hour movie wasn't put out. Um, but like I said, I think it was a little better than the original, but not particularly special. I didn't think it was bad, but I felt that the four hour runtime was excessive because take like a half time. Cause I right. should have. Yeah. Yeah. You got to take as much advantage of that intermission as possible. Um, but no, really my, my, 
true takeaway was like, oh, so like two hours of this movie were the Cyborg and Flash origin movie, which should have been its own thing, and then this could have been a two-hour movie. Yeah, no, you, you hit the nail on the head. You, they rushed to develop characters because the MCU is doing so damn well. Right. So they just right. want to get it going. Right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so uh, another thing that I saw on your Twitter as I was doing my uncomfortable deep dive here <laughs> is uh, something that we've actually talked about on the show before, and I'll share my example after you share yours. Um, but the idea of not getting a character in wrestling until way later. And you mentioned that your choice was The Undertaker. Yeah. Yeah. I growing up. Well, when I, I guess when I first came into wrestling, like I said, it was on that video game and he was doing the American Badass deal, right. which I thought, cool, but I was also a child. Um, so when <laughs> he went, so when he went back towards the dead man and I didn't know the history, I didn't right. understand the legacy of the character. So growing up, it just, it just didn't do it for me. I didn't really, I just wasn't into the undead zombie priest thing that Taker was doing. And it took getting into wrestling and understanding wrestling psychology and understanding kayfabe and gimmicks and like really having a deeper, much deeper appreciation for the character. I always liked what Undertaker did in the ring. I always liked his matches, but the character that that didn't sit right for me growing up through his prime and I, even in the later years, the WrestleMania years, looking back on it, I get it. I get all of it now and I love it, but I didn't at the time. And that's a really interesting perspective to have because for so many people, I think the a lot of The Undertaker is carried by nostalgia. Not to say he's not talented or anything like that, but I'm saying like if you're looking if you're if you jump on at he's a biker and then suddenly he's a one man haunted house, you're gonna be like, What the hell happened here? Right. So it's based on this nostalgia and this legacy that I didn't have for the character. And so it took me understanding the full history to really get behind it so for me my answer is um is ted dibiase the million dollar man because i unfortunately was born in 88 so i was just getting out of like the rock and wrestling era i was starting to make memories so Mm -hmm. by that time million dollar man is kind of slowing down a little bit but going back and watching stuff i just didn't get it i was like this guy sucks i want him off my tv because you're a kid (laughs) you don't really think about it in terms of like the performance element you're just like this guy sucks boo and that was it <laughs> that's um, actually that's how i you know who who made me feel that way uh william regal i never liked uh-huh. regal bro i never like watching his stuff and again one, it's one of those things like you look back now and it's like yeah what he did on a regular basis was amazing it was incredible i love watching regal matches now when i can appreciate the pace i still stand that his when he was even older some of Regal's stuff is so good. Like his promo when he was going against um, Cesaro and NXT and stuff like that. Like some of the yeah. stuff is so powerful. The raw general manager era of him. So mm-hmm. like, I guess like 07, 08 through till the end of his career, it's all gold. I just didn't know yet. Right, right. Well, yeah. And again, he's, he's you know, this parade rainer basically on TV. And then you're seeing, you know, some stupid thing like poops in his coffee cup and he's like <laughs> making a face at the camera. And you're just like, yeah. as a kid, you're just like, this isn't fun. Get out of here. But you watch back. You're like, what? He committed to everything. No matter what they asked him, he committed to it. 
and I can have a, I can have an appreciation for that. It's like not everybody's gonna be the 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 world champion character or the dominator character. Like you have to have foils. You have to have you know jokes on him characters. Like I can get that now. So let me ask you this because obviously you know we're we're big gimmick guide people around these parts, and so I see a lot of wrestlers who get out of wrestling school really struggle with figuring out a gimmick. And I see a lot of guys just sort of show up with their name on their tights and they're just like, Oh, I'm assuming Vince McMahon's going to be calling any day now. How do you start really kind of getting in the mindset of really being a larger than life persona or really carrying sort of a character motivation in a match and not just like, Oh, I'm just going to wrestle and hopefully people give a shit. So how I'm understanding the question is, at least for, for me, it's how did you come across your character and how do you implement it into what you do? Is and that why a... can't everyone else do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so for me, right, this is, this is how I came across it. Um, being a New Yorker in Florida is pretty common, but being an obnoxious New Yorker in Florida can be unique. So I, when I, even when I first started, when I got out of wrestling school, I was wearing these bright, green trunks with black trim that they were very generic. Cade gave me them as like a, oh, you don't have gear yet here till you get some good gear. Like, cool. I happened to have a matching bright New York Jets hat. And so when I would go to the ring, they didn't know my name, but they saw the Jets logo and they would boo me instantly. And so I said, all right, there's, there's something there, the New York stuff. So, so from there it became my first custom gear will be Yankees pinstripes because nobody likes the Yankees. Some New Yorkers don't even like the Yankees. So, I, I knew that I'm gonna I'm gonna gain or sorry I'm gonna garner heat I'm gonna garner hatred by what I'm wearing I don't even need to put anything out yet nothing needs to even come out of my mouth yet and they're already gonna dislike me just by what I'm wearing and that just evolved into the the bodega boy which is this sort of arrogant annoying New York kid who never shuts up and is always running his mouth and and disrespecting people which is you know if if you've been on a New York street corner you're gonna find plenty of people like that. Um, so it it first struck off the idea of, oh, maybe I should get a slice of pizza and walk to the ring with it. And then I thought to myself, no, nah, pizza, every time I get, every time I go to a show, like, what if there's no pizza place nearby? True. What's nearby? Gas stations. They don't have bodegas in Florida, which sucks. But gas stations, what do gas stations have that bodegas also have? Uh, little packets of M&Ms, maybe a honey bun. Arizona, perfect. They're a dollar. The price is on the can. They can't change it. Arizona cans. And that's how I started, I guess, bringing that in so now i have a heater because i can hit somebody with that can um i can drink it during the match and look like a jerk there there are different things that i can do just with that can alone and then with something that something that i learned from you but also from from other people telling me which is like when you figure out your gimmick when you figure out your character it's easier to put matches together because now you think what would my character do in this situation what would my character do in that situation and so once you have a gimmick and you have a character, it's easy, it gets easier and easier to project that. But you have to have one first. Mm-hmm. Now, I do have a very, very specific question about your gear. So uh, as you actually just mentioned now and put on Twitter, you do have uh, fantastic New York Yankees-themed gear. Uh, <laughs> and the picture that you chose to use was a picture of Derek Jeter. And one of the longstanding uh, rumors about Derek Jeter is that when he would hook up with women the next day, there'd be a car waiting and in the car would be a gift basket for the ladies. So my question to you is, 
in an alternate universe where this is a thing, what would we expect in a Jarrett Diaz one night gift, gift basket? In in a Bodega Boy one night gift basket from brought to you by one Jarrett Diaz. In the can, sorry, in the in the bag would be an Arizona and a bacon, egg, and cheese. Okay, um, maybe Plan B. Um, <laughs> Arizona bacon, egg, and cheese. Plan B. No, that's it. That's fuel. That's fine. <laughs> that's enough. You consider yourself lucky. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, Jeter probably had I don't know, like. $10,000 Rolex is in the bag. You think I got $10,000 Rolex money for everybody? Well, no. Allegedly, there was always a signed baseball. A signed baseball? That's perfect. That's perfect. I'm going to put a Derek Jeter signed baseball in all of the Jared Diaz gift baskets. <laughs> Just to really confuse him on the way out. Like, okay, well, I like this flavor of iced tea. And, okay, yeah, the bacon egg's good. Oh, plan B? Okay, responsible. Yeah, he. we were pretty irresponsible. And a baseball signed by Derek Jeter? Like, <laughs> <laughs> is Derek Peter his like uncle or something? What the fuck is this? <laughs> yep, that's, uh, that's why in my gift bag. My gift bag. That's that's impressive. So, <laughs> uh, one other wrestling question I did actually have is, um, seeing as you've you've got your feet wet in both New York and in Florida in the the wrestling scenes on the indie level, without you know burning every bridge. Uh, what would you say are the big differences between the New York scene and the Florida scene? Um, well, that's that's kind of tricky. The Northeast is like smaller, quote unquote, territory, right? right? So you have shows in Jersey, shows in Connecticut, shows in Rhode Island, in New Hampshire, uh, Pennsylvania. There, are, the quote unquote New York scene isn't even open yet. There have been little to no shows in New York since quarantine and COVID and all of that stuff. So I've been able to hit the surrounding states. I've wrestled in Connecticut. I'm wrestling in Massachusetts this coming weekend, which is as of recording, June 12th is the date of, of the match. Um, I've hit Rhode Island. I've hit New Jersey. So it's more spread out. And because of that, I'm finding more diversity among the talent used. Let's mm. be honest. I both know because you've you've booked plenty of shows. I've been on plenty of shows. You've announced at plenty of shows. A lot of the same faces in the, mm-hmm. in all different locker rooms in Florida, and I can I can honestly say that there's a lot of talent in Florida. There's a lot of really good wrestlers that aren't used enough, and then there are some that I don't want to say are bad, but maybe not as good that are in a lot of different places in Florida because. A lot of the same bases are used, and oftentimes a lot of the shows are run by the same people. You have mm-hmm. you have you have certain wrestlers that help out promoters by booking the shows. But what do they do? They book a lot of the same faces because they've worked with them, or they know them, or they're friends. And that's not necessarily a, a trying to put any talent particularly down. It's just the fact that there are a lot of shows in Florida. A lot of I think uh, Speedy, the the photographer, who's mm-hmm. incredible, he put a list of promotions together. And there are like over a hundred promotions active or recently active just in Florida alone. Right. So how are the same faces being used that frequently? Mm. That's, I would say that's the the biggest difference. Uh, what about crowds? I mean, like you said, obviously you're coming into this like post COVID. So I, you can't really exactly say like, well, the crowds are exactly because this is a weird different time, but I, you I and I have, you and I have been in some, uh, 
some questionable crowd situations here in the South. Yeah, I've had I've actually had the luxury of working in front of crowds a lot up here, um, whether they be limited seating or full seating, but very spread out depending on venue size. Uh, I wrestled on a show last week in Florida that was sparsely attended, and then the week before that, I was in Rhode Island where there was about two hundred people, people hanging from the rafters. So the crowd sizes right now are varying all over the place. Right. However. This is what I will say. I think that Florida crowds, and this goes back to my previous problem of a lot of the same faces on on shows, a lot of the crowds are seeing a lot of the same faces, which means they're almost conditioned to know what's coming a little more. I think Florida fans mm-hmm. may be a little harder. They're, they might be a little bit more wise to the business or, or to the to the talent, you know, which means they're a little more used to it and maybe a little less appreciative, if I'm being totally honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, and maybe this is just because I'm new to this scene in up here in the Northeast, but it definitely feels more genuine. Like, uh, like, like wrestling fans are happy to be there. They don't seem to be, um, spoiled by anything. Like I've, I've had, uh, really big pops from crowds here before I even get to my dive. Whereas just last week in Florida, when I did my dive, eh, kind of middling reaction, and I think that's just because Florida fans are more conditioned because there's so much more wrestling and mm. they, they have a better idea of what's coming. Whereas New York uh, and, and Northeast crowd in general, from what I've seen, is like, I don't know, they're just a little less smarky. They're just, they're a little more earnest, I guess. Well, and also it's one of those cases where, you know, it's like you said, it's a difference between, hey, if I live in, you know, Pennsylvania and I maybe get a chance to see wrestling, I don't know, maybe five six times a year maybe let's say sure and i then i my cousin lives in florida and if he wanted to and had the money he could watch wrestling twice a week every week until he was dead exactly exactly so there is i think a little bit of a difference in like does this feel special kind of a thing um and it's actually funny that you mentioned that so i have two things i want to talk about um number one i can't remember where i had read this but there was definitely somebody down here who had mentioned similar to your idea of hey you know i've wrestled in front of this crowd a bunch and now i'm not getting any kind of reactions at all and sort of the i i it felt like the initial post was kind of in like a ugh, these crowds am i right and then it kind of turned into like a well that's kind of the burden of it if you're wrestling in front of the same audience week after week or month after month, then the onus is on you to either come up with new stories to tell, or if you're not comfortable with that, or like you said, you don't have a character yet that you can tell a story with, then you're going to have to keep reinventing the wheel. Because if I'm a fan in the crowd and I've seen you wrestle every week for six months and it's like, oh, but he's going to do this moonsault. Okay. Well, I've seen it a dozen times now. So this doesn't really, it's not the pizzazz is gone. Yeah, it's like uh it's overexposure or, or burnout. Like yeah. I remember seeing this it was it was years ago, but I remember seeing this on on Twitter before the uh WWE did their brand split thing. Um Dolph Ziggler was on every single show. Now me, mm-hmm. I personally love Dolph Ziggler. I will watch him wrestle <laughs> six times a week, uh 
and twice on Sunday, so eight times a week. Right. I'll, I'll watch it. I don't mind it. But I remember seeing this this sort of overexposure idea where it's like, oh, we see him on every show. That's three, four times a week. Like we are, we already see the same stuff. So the it's a uh, law of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. I wrestled in front of the Port Ritchie, uh, you know, Pasco County crowd a ton of times, and like you said, unless you're reinventing the wheel, unless you're constantly diversifying what you do in the ring, they're going to get used to what what your stuff is. Mm-hmm. And it's not to put fans down because it's on the superstars, it's on the wrestlers to diversify and ver- vary their shows. Mm-hmm. That's, I guess, the challenge of building a rapport and then overstaying your welcome. That's a great point. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, you got to find that balance because obviously, like you've pointed out, making debuts can really be fantastic. Like you can do, oh, here's the stuff that I know always works and this is going to be the first time this crowd sees it. But if you continue to get booked at the same place and you're still trying to pull the same stuff that, you know, impressed people the first time, like you said perfectly, it's diminishing returns. And you're going to need to either figure out, A, can I tell a story? Because, you you know, the argument is like, well, Stone Cold and The Rock, they did the same five moves every match for their whole career. Okay, yes. However, we were talking about stories. There were stories going on so that when The Rock did the people's elbow to Triple H in this particular moment, it meant something because of X, Y, Z. It's not just a wrestling move. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and also, if we're talking about it from a strictly gimmick level, if you have a move that includes something where you throw a souvenir in the crowd, people probably aren't going to get sick of that. So that's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. So, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to – I was just thinking, what is what is he talking about? Oh, that's right, the elbow pad. The yeah, elbow he would pad. whip the elbow pad out in the crowd. So it didn't matter if you saw it 100 times in a month. If you were on that side of the ring, you were like, he's doing it! Like – <laughs> yeah. So, in addition to being a, uh, a an incredible up and coming wrestler uh, on two different uh, you know sides of the map, uh, you are also a sports contributor, a writer for uh, uh, LA Tonique, and I want to know. I, first of all, I've read some of your work, and you do a great job. Um, <laughs> I was actually pleasantly surprised that your uh, write up about like where uh, options for Daniel Bryan to go uh, post WWE. I was actually expecting it just to be a really long form written out promo of you, like challenging him to a show like that. That was going to be like, Oh, where's your next move in the ring with me, Brian? Like that's kind of where I thought it was going to go. So I was pleasantly surprised. Oh man, that would, I sh- I'll do that next time. <laughs> <laughs> like that. That's option. Number four is like, you fight me, Brian, quit ducking me. Um, but Calling out Bryan by way of article. Exactly. We like. Well, it was really well written, but also fuck this kid. Um, <laughs> but being a, a writer and a sports contributor now, how has that changed how you view sports and professional wrestling now? So I, yeah, I, I'm a sports contributor for Lots Unique. So I, I've written uh, some NFL and NCAA football articles. I've contributed on podcasts, but I'm their lead wrestling writer. That's my main role uh, on the website. So. At first, it was uh, doing show reviews. I was doing mo- weekly Monday Night Raw and weekly Friday Night SmackDown, as well as uh, uh, NXT takeovers and major pay-per-views, or all pay-per-views, so all the major shows. And that began to drain me, not because I don't love wrestling, but because I was watching 
every show the same way. And I was trying to be as analytical as possible, which means the entertainment value started taking a backseat. And I didn't enjoy that as much because like I'm, I'm a wrestler, so I'm watching wrestling analytically already, but I'm a fan and I've been a fan longer than I've been a wrestler. So I actually want to be watching wrestling. And so I brought that to my, I brought that to my, uh, my editor, the, the, the boss over there. And I told him, listen, I like what I'm doing. I really enjoy my role, but I think I would be better suited doing this. And it became more opinion pieces. And so I wrote a piece on Samoa Joe when he, when he left the company, I wrote a, uh, a piece on Daniel Bryan when he left the company. Um, and that became more entertaining just for me to enjoy because I'm able to just, I don't know, maybe, maybe reach a different audience, maybe a little bit, I don't know, I, I guess smarkier in a way, or, or just smarter, more educated on a little bit more of the business side, because, you know, WWE isn't the end-all be-all of professional wrestling anymore. And it really never was, but people people have the perception of, if you're not in WWE, you don't matter. Right. So, so I've been able to sort of put that aside and say, hey, you can go to Ring of Honor, you can go to New Japan, you can be on the indies, you can go to Impact, or you can go back to WWE. There are no wrong answers for guys like that. And so I've just been able to, I don't know if, or, and all lead as well. So maybe if you, maybe if you didn't know about Ring of Honor or you didn't know about New Japan, and I wrote about it a little bit in an article, maybe even one paragraph, you say, oh, who is who is Roosh? What is Ring of Honor? And then you go look it up, and now you're you're introduced to a whole new wrestling catalog. And so I think it's I think it's a really cool thing to do where, you know, I'm I'm sort of introducing people who know WWE to other things. Well, and and not to, not to put you over too huge here i think if there was ever a way to so there's always a big pushback on like wow we're we're letting too many fans in backstage and behind the curtain and they're fucking ruining it yeah but my thought on this is if there was ever going to be a great balance and a right way to explain some of the elements of wrestling that don't get explained i think what you're doing is absolutely in that vein because it's like especially like the daniel bryan piece you're writing about like yeah man you get banged up and he was complaining about you know nagging neck injuries all over again and the man was forced to retire and then worked his way back like these are elements that are not a story per se but they are a real genuine element of pro wrestling that isn't included on camera so it's not like the here's how he planned his matches brother no, it's more of like, a, hey, yeah, you you put it on Twitter. Like, most people would be shocked at how much money I spend getting two shows to be on. Like, these are elements of wrestling that are not glamorous, but are so authentic and so real. Absolutely. I think, I think that there's a there's a balance between looking at wrestlers and superstars as superstars versus looking at wrestlers as assets. And I think that balance is looking at them as humans, as real life people, like you or I. Uh, I've I've had the pleasure of meeting and working with a guy like Cody Rhodes. When when he introduces himself, he's ah oh, hi I'm I'm all the vice president Cody Rhodes. It's just hi I'm Cody. He's a normal person. He's a real person. And I think that sort of blending these two ideas of like full fan and uh, I'm in the business too, brother. Like there's a there's a balance here, and I try to I guess ride that line when I when I get my work done for Latinique and. Even when I interact with other wrestlers and when I do my thing, it's like, hey, I'm not too good to be a fan, but I'm not so brainwashed that I don't look at it 
with perspective. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and again, I feel like that balance is the right answer because we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. We can't pretend that like, wow, fans will never know that, you know, wrestling is built in certain ways. Like that's just not an option anymore, but that doesn't mean all access pass. And like, Hey, by the way, here's everybody's feet pictures from backstage. Like, no, 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 we don't got to do that. I think when it's, it's funny that when I, uh, when I talk about wrestling with people who aren't wrestlers, or even if I'm like just introducing myself, or if they're just finding out that I'm a wrestler, it's like always the first question is, is it fake? Or like, how real is it? That's always the first or second question that comes to me. And I, I, I like to preface it with this. It's like, is it fake? Kind of. Let's talk about it. And then I tell them, like, hey, here's what's a little bit more uh, real, the, the more real elements of it, and then here's what's not so real. I let them in because if they really want to know, they're going to accept the answer. With that being said, when I was a young kid and my dad told me, hey, like, and he sat me down and explained it to me properly. Like, these are athletes. These are gymnasts and bodybuilders and former professional sports players. These guys are legit but they're putting on a show. So I was introduced to it that way. And when I was, it made me like it even more. I know a lot of people that when they found out it was quote unquote fake, they bailed. I dove in further because now it's like, so these people, they get together and they perform and these are the things that they're capable of. And I found it to be incredible to just be a little bit behind that curtain. So as I got older, I wanted to learn more, not to expose it, not to treat it like it's dirt or like it's a carny show. I learn more and more so I can raise it up. That's a great answer. My answer, if someone asks me if it's fake, is I saw a wrestler grab a bottle out of a baby's mouth <laughs> and spike it on the ground in the middle of Pasco County. And then I saw the mother of that baby pick that bottle up and not brush it off oh, and put it back in that baby's mouth. Mm. It don't get more real than that. <laughs> you no, can't that's... fake that. But you know what, though? That's, that's, that I... kid's immune system will never be right. You can't fake that. <laughs> but I think that's very specific to Pasco County. <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. that happening anywhere else. You would hope not, but you never know. Wrestling's weird. So um, I want to take a minute here and really date this episode really, really date this so that when we listen back in like six months, we're like, oh, Jesus. Um, let's just take turns taking a big old shit on uh, Mayweather versus Paul. Okay. Because you called it on Twitter. You put it out there that you called it before the, ma- the fight even happened. Yeah. So I watched the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight. That's probably the first wrestling match, sorry, boxing match that I watched. As an adult, I used to watch a lot as a kid with my grandmother. She was a really big fan of like Roy Jones Jr. and and uh, Oscar De La Hoya. My my grandmother and my aunt as well. They both love boxing, so I would watch it with them when I was a little kid. Pacquiao Mayweather was uh, really disappointing for people, and I didn't really understand why. And then I learned, oh, because Floyd's not a fun fighter to watch. He's one of the greatest boxers of all time, and he does so by never getting hit. And so when this Logan Paul Floyd match was announced, I, th- I said to myself, and then I started saying to other people, Logan Paul is not a real boxer yet. He could be one day, but right now he isn't. That's number one. And number two, Floyd is 50-0 and 0 because of XYZ. 
And so when Logan Paul gets in the ring with Floyd with a 30-pound, sorry, 39-pound weight advantage, but not that much of a reach advantage, and Floyd being the fighter that he is, still in great shape despite being uh, in his upper 40s, Logan Paul is going to punch himself out, Floyd is going to dodge all of it, and then they're going to end up hugging at the end. And that's exactly what happened. That's what happened. Like a boxing Nostradamus. You called that perfectly. I'm not even mad about it because I know I I watched it once and that's all it took. I learned how Floyd fights in that he doesn't that much and that's okay because he <laughs> <laughs> that's And that's that's fine. I accept that. I don't expect anybody to get knocked out in a Floyd Mayweather fight, especially when he's in his 40s. I, I just don't. And that's, you know, people were disappointed. That's because you weren't paying attention. That's fair. And I think a lot of that could actually be carried over into wrestling. I think that analytical eye to see, oh, okay, this is how this guy carries himself. This is how this guy works or, or fights in the ring. This is how I need to figure out in order to make this make sense. Um, I did enjoy the part where the referee had to explain to uh, Logan halfway through how boxing works. There was like <laughs> a clip that came out like, yeah. like the last 72 hours where the ref like, Logan's in the corner, like, and then the ref comes over, like, hey, by the way, you got to stop holding on to him. If we had real judges, you'd be losing points. You know what's crazy is that I saw this clip shortly after the fight. I saw it on Twitter, and it probably got pulled down for copyright. But at one point, there was a seventh round area, a seventh round uh, situation where Floyd countered a left jab from, from Paul and hit a right cross and dazed Paul to the point where he hugged into Mayweather. People are speculating that Paul would have been out if Mayweather didn't grab him. And so Mayweather held him up to keep fighting. So there's, uh, I guess, part of the business aspect of it is, hey, these people paid for a show. We're going to give them all eight rounds, and we're both going to go home millionaires. Right. Goddamn conspiracy is what well, I'm hearing right now. I don't know why anybody thought somebody was going to get knocked out. Yeah, no, that's that's well, really the thing. Is like, I don't know why anybody would have bought into like, oh, we're going to see a knock. Like, no, we're not. No, we're not. If if Floyd and Pacquiao didn't end in a knockout and they ended up throwing some blows, why would Floyd, Logan Paul, end up in a knockout? That's what I wanted to know. And nobody can give me an answer. They just thought, oh, Logan Paul's big. He's going to knock him out. He's not going to touch him. And he didn't. Yeah, well, everybody w- watches the Rocky movies, and then they're like, that's how it works. He's Ivan Drago. Perfect. I And you, you said something a little while back is uh the analytical eye of watching it. All right, this is how this person carries himself. This is how they fight in the ring you say you can watch wrestling that way too when i had my match with myron reed coming up i was just scouting his stuff i was just watching it all week and i i spoke to uh snoop strikes Cotto brazil on mlw who's worked with him a ton on uh, as, as a part of injustice and i said to snoop i said yo snoop i have this match with myron coming up like just anything i should know anything you can tell me in advance he says come with ideas i perfect so I just watched Myron Reed matches for a week, and I just wrote stuff down. I just had ideas because I'm going to watch it analytically. I'm going to watch and film myself in that role. Now, how much of that would you say is is just good advice for any wrestler? Like, oh, should you come I, into any match with, like, a list of ideas? I I don't say that I do that a lot, but if I know that there's a match with, like, a lot of uh, – time in advance so not not necessarily build or story but if i have some time like if i if i know who i'm going to wrestle a couple weeks before the show which as you know in wrestling it doesn't always work like that um very rarely 
I'll go watch their stuff. I had a match um, in New Jersey a couple weeks ago with this guy, Kona Capucha, and he only had one match on YouTube, so I couldn't scout it. But Myron, Myron's been on MLW for a couple years now. I had a whole catalog of stuff. Um, so with a guy like that, I know I'm going to want to come on my A-game with my ideas. So, yeah, I would say if you're a wrestler or if, if you're a performer and you have an opportunity to scout the opponent and, and sort of come with ideas prepared, even if you don't write all of them down, just come and, and get, get that imagination going because when you get there, they're going to be more receptive to you and to your ideas if you have them. That's true. I, I hadn't actually really considered that in terms of, I feel like it's always a good idea just to have ideas for yourself in terms of like, well, these are things I know work for me. But if you do have that opportunity to scout who you're going to be working with, I imagine that's got to be like a huge weight off the other person's shoulders. If it's like, oh, hey, I was thinking about this because I know you do this. What if we built that? I feel like that's going to be like a holy shit. I got somebody who wants to work with me and not against me here. Exactly. So I had this, I, the first one I wrote down, it just poofed in my brain and I thought it was perfect because he does, he does this spot where, uh, and we're pulling the current all the way back. Myron does this spot where he'll chase a guy into the corner. He'll get bandaired to the outside. He'll jump right back in and hit a code breaker. And as you've been watching my stuff for a long time now, I like to, to flip out of a monkey flip to my feet. So mm -hmm. we did charge me. Bandera, come back in, monkey flip to my feet. So it just—it was just an idea that we were able to do in the match, and I was only able to do it because I'd already seen his work. True, yeah. If you had just brought that up organically, of like, oh, I, you know, I like to do a thing where I get the monkey flip by land on my feet. Maybe there was a chance you could have built that, but you jumped, you skipped all that unsure waiting around time and hope and fingers crossed that you come up with something cool. By just being like, oh, hey, you do this A and plus B, we can actually link these up and build something that no one else has done. Exactly. I don't want to be the guy who's taking forever to make their match. I want to be the guy who has time to remember their match. <laughs> yes, yes, excellent. So I do have a, a, few, uh, a few more standardized questions here. First of all, the uh, Trevin Adams memorial question. Um, when you're on the road and you make the or, – or on a flight, you know, as it may be, uh, top – Top talent. Um, with uh, but if you, when you're on the road and you're hungry and and you've decided not to do the uh, bring out the the pizza slice as part of your entrance, um, that would be so greasy. That would be so greasy. Somebody got to clean up after my slice too. Not to I mention, never finish it on the way on the way to the ring. I eat like I would eat like three bites. I was just gonna say, and that's the other thing too. You're uh, not gonna eat the whole slice because you'll be bloated as shit in the ring. You'll be like, oh, why did I eat that? No, I'm not even worried about that. I just would have wasted the slice. That's true. Just, you're about to bite it, you throw it on the floor. <laughs> A woman in the crowd picks it up, feeds it to her baby. Anyway, um, so while you're on the road, uh, and you got to make a stop for something to eat, uh, would you, is that a preference point, a Sheets or a Wawa? Uh, a Wawa. We actually, uh, I didn't, we don't have Wawas in New York, so you got to go to Jersey to get one. So I hadn't ever eaten that one before. But when I, when I went down in Florida and I started going to these trips, it was actually Jay and Rich, shout out to the Rapture Boys, that would say, are we going to the Wawa after the show? Or we're going to the Wawa on the way to the show. Um, almost every time that we were in uh, Port Ritchie as well, it's Wawa right after. So, yeah, of course. I don't even know what Sheets is, I'm being totally honest with you. It's, a, it's, the, it's the northern uh, main competitor. So there's, there are zero Sheets like on the bottom 50% of the, of the – uh, the country. So let me flip it then, since you're not familiar with sheets and uh, fuck you, Chad. That's another one for Team Wawa. Um, 
between uh uh Waffle House and IHOP, what's your what's your preference? You know what? I'm gonna tell you IHOP and here's why. Okay. I was on a football recruiting trip at the University of Oklahoma in my junior year of high school. And I got there at two in the morning. We landed, my my father and I, who would normally take these trips with me. We landed at two in the morning, went straight to a Waffle House. I had to be throwing footballs by like 9 a.m. that very day. We went to Waffle House, and it just didn't sit right, and I was up all night. So I don't eat a Waffle House. I don't go there anymore. So is Waffle, is uh, is IHOP, for sure. That's fair. That's a good answer. Uh, Now, follow-up question here. Uh, We here at the IndyCast understand that pro wrestling is a very difficult life. Um, For as much as you love it, and as much as many others have loved it, we do lose a lot of talent early. And so with that being said, who is a personality, a performer, uh, anybody associated with pro wrestling who is no longer alive that you would have loved to have worked with? Ooh, that's a, that's a really tough question. Um, damn, that's a, that's a really tough question. You know what? I don't, think it ever would have happened but some of that i always really appreciated watching who like just did the small stuff really well was lance cade okay he, he used to he used to team with murdoch and then later on he uh i'm reminding you oh alexa's telling me to eat some food um <laughs> so, so i'm glad we're having this really serious moment about like yes the fleeting life of wrestlers and then oh i gotta have some num nums the robot told me to <laughs> um no so so Lance Cade used to team with Murdoch and then he did a little thing with Jericho when Jericho was feuding with Shawn Michaels. I was really into just Lance Cade. I thought he was really good and so that's obviously he would be much older at this time but I think if some if I could have a match with somebody who's no longer with us it'd be it would be Lance Cade. That's that's uh I think that might actually be the first time we've had a Lance Cade mentioned on here. Um and then uh our, our other question here is that we here at the IndyCast believe that every animal in nature has certain evolutionary traits to ensure its survival. So rhinos have big horns, you know, giraffes have long necks, et cetera, et cetera. Our belief is that human beings as an animal, their evolutionary trait is their ability to use tools. So that being said, Bodega Boy Jared Diaz, if you had to fight any animal what would it be, and what weapon would you use? Yo, what are you talking about? All right, all right. If I had to fight any animal. What um, would it be, and what weapon would you use? <laughs> what a ridiculous question. The, hey, the... that question put us on the map for seven years, okay? <laughs> if I could fight any animal, it would be, I wouldn't even need a tool for this. It would be a pigeon. The tool would be my shoe. Okay. Um, listen, pigeons, especially in New York, New York City pigeons, they walk around like they own this place. Um, they eat your food if you drop it. They will fly right next to you and just walk right in front of you. They will land on your car while, you, like, while you're stopped at a light. They don't care, and I don't like them. So I, I, have, this, I have this dream. I want to punt a pigeon. Like I want to just kick one right through the uprights. So that's, that's something that I want to do. I so, feel like that's the WrestleMania entrance. It's just so you that, just kick it into the ring. I would, I would put on a, a big pair of Tims and just fight a pigeon. That's what I would do. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Uh, So now comes the part of the show uh, that officially has been uh, greenlit by Brian Cage to be referred to as Get Your Shit In. 
So uh, tell the folks at home where they can find you on social media, where they can buy your merch. The floor is yours. Uh, on Instagram and YouTube, I am at the Jared Diaz Show, or just search the Jared Diaz Show on YouTube, where you will find matches, highlights, vlogs, uh, random stuff I've cut up, a couple of documentaries that Zach Romero, you helped me on one of those, mm-hmm. um, which was which was very fun to make and a little sad. Uh, on Twitter at the Jared Diaz. On Facebook, do not look for me. And on Fully Gimmicked, you search Jarrett Diaz or the Bodega Boy. And my brand new Bodega Boy merch is up. Thanks, of course, to Fully Gimmicked. Good man. Good, good man. Uh, So thank you so much, Jarrett, for helping us kick off this season. This has been fantastic. Uh, Long overdue. Glad to have you on the show. Thrilled to be continuing the saga of this very strange broadcast. And uh, on behalf of Chad and Luna, who are not here tonight, uh, to all of our dozens and dozens, I am Zach Romero saying, as always, deuces. Hope I don't poop today. Hercules Mulligan! A jump scare is the Canadian destroyer of horror films. Pardon me. Might I suck my own dick for a second? I'm ready to greet the day, you fucker. (laughs) Every single one of you guys has made a horrible decision. (laughs) It's that dirty-ass Meryl Streep. We are. We're touching wieners, touching wieners professionally. Ric Flair said fuck a six-pack, and he never lost an ounce of pussy. What I am is a big, queer, stone-cold Steve Austin. Birds don't give a fuck about your life.